All right, cool. So we're live now. We are live. We're Dr. Live. Tim Deloy, welcome back to the Mindful Guys Show. We're so uh, great to see so, you guys and be back again. It was so much fun when I uh, interviewed with you guys out there in uh, actually Morongo Valley out towards Joshua Tree. It was such a fun experience and uh, definitely one where I think we're all going to remember for some time. It was very cool. And again, we're so grateful to have you back. So thank you for coming on the show. No problem. My pleasure. So I actually, you know, we were talking a little bit off mic about this convention you were just at. And I think it would be really cool to kind of open up with that and then we can kind of transition wherever we kind of want to go. But I actually want to hear a little bit more about the Health Summit, it was called? Yeah, it was called the uh, Metabolic Health Summit and it was um, held down in Long Beach. This was the third annual one. Um, and it, it was really um, very well produced. It, so it had um, a number of the speakers were um, actual uh, scientists from different universities studying um, the different effects of largely the ketogenic diet on a number of uh, disease states such as Alzheimer's, cancer, mm. diabetes, overweight, um, Parkinson's, uh, epilepsy. Um, and then they also had a number of, of you know, medical individuals such as um, you know, functional medicine doctors, integrative medicine doctors, holistic uh, doctors, um, people, uh, nurses in, in, in that reality. And then there was also um, a number of um, celebrities in, in terms of the ketogenic diet that have their own um, following podcasts or written in a, a number of books on the subject, uh, people like Rob Wolf. Um, and, uh, and then they uh, also had a number of vendors that had uh, ketogenic products. So it was a little of something for everyone. So mm -hmm. it was something, you know, you could get into the science of um, really the research that's going on in this realm, which is pretty amazing. And you can get into actually how it's being used in the clinic from, from that end. Mm -hmm. As well as, you know, what's available um, to the lay public in regards to cookbooks on the subject or uh, other, other books. And so... Um, uh, yeah, it was quite a fascinating thing. I, I'm glad I went, and it's, uh, I'm going to recommend it to a number of people next year. It's going to be held in Long Beach again next year about this time. That's really so cool. cool. And, and you've been doing, how long have you been doing the ketogenic diet for? Um, I've done it for probably about two to three years now. Okay. I mean, as I, as I learn more and more of um, how it works and what it what it actually does to your homeostasis is how mm -hmm. your body works. The more interest I've got in it, and the research that was presenting at this conference was, um, it's amazing. Some of the things that uh, this, uh, you know, they they're beginning to call it the ketogenic metabolic therapy because you know diets. You know, we always think of diets as oh, okay, what's the latest fad and mm -hmm. diets and and some people that think in a ketogenic diet is in a sense is a fad. However, when you start looking at actually at the science and what they've been able to do with it in regards to a number of diseases that I just mentioned earlier, right. it's it's pretty remarkable. And it's basically all about getting your body, you know, back in alignment, back in homeostasis, mm -hmm. getting your mitochondria working to their full potential, and then you start seeing all the benefits as a result of that. Yeah, and I definitely want to talk to you more about the mitochondria as later in this conversation. But I was wondering, you know, I, I, I what's your perspective on this? Because I've seen that the whole intermittent fasting kind of goes hand in hand with the ketogenic diet. Mm -hmm. Have you found that that's true, or where do you think that the those two things um, come together? Well, you know, like um, you, you just mentioned, it really all boils down to the health and maintenance of your mitochondria. I okay. would say, you know, if you keep your mitochondria happy, you're going to be healthy. If you keep them unhappy, you're going to be unhealthy. You know, it's as simple as that. It, of course, it's mind-bogglingly complex when you really get into the nitty-gritty of how it all works. But, you know, on the basic premise... Um, anything that's good for your mitochondria and so intermittent mm -hmm. fasting as well as you know multiple day water fasting mm -hmm. is yeah, yeah. Um, it really increases uh, what they call autophagy which is basically the um, recycling of uh, the proteins and materials um, in your cells sometimes the elimination of cells that are weakened so they can be replaced by a new cell um, with a new set of mitochondria so um, you know sometimes you I liken it to like you know 
sometimes you have this old car that's been lunking along and you just keep on putting more money into it, keeping it going, but it's like always breaking down or you can just stop that process and, you know, buy a new car that has none of the problems and, and can keep on going because all the components are new. It's the same thing that these things like intermittent fasting and mm -hmm. the longer fasting causes you to decide to get rid of all these old cars and replace them with new ones. So that's the cells that I'm talking about. You're replacing, the, so the autophagy is getting rid of the old, worn out systems and replacing them with new vital systems. And so those methods really mm -hmm. help spark that process. That's, okay. a, that's a super interesting analogy. I like that. What, what are some of the other major ways that you find yourself kind of trying to increase the strength or production of your mitochondria? Well, I mean, there's, there's many. Um, there's two things that you're trying to do. You're trying to increase the, the functionality of the mitochondria that you do have running. You want to make them as healthy as possible, but you also want to do um, things that, that are referred to as biogenesis or causing the mitochondria to uh, duplicate, you know, to divide so you have a higher number of them. So you want, you know, high function and high, high numbers. And your tissues, you know, all your tissues have different amounts of mitochondria, them, like the brain, Brain uh, cells, such as neurons, have a huge number of mitochondria. Um, the heart cell as well, um, as well as the, uh, the retina. And so mm. it tells you that these, these areas are very high energy demand areas. Then you have, you know, to a lesser extent, less mitochondria in other cells throughout the body. But, you know, the more you need energy, the more mitochondria you have. And so, so things that you can do... Um, is many things, but for instance, uh, what they call uh, cold and hot thermogenesis. So, um, you know, these going going into really cold water is right. really good because what you're doing is you're causing um, you call it causing uh, micro stress essentially. So it's not like you're you're putting yourself into stress constantly, mm -hmm. but you know. As you know, if you sat in a hot tub and then you jump in an Arctic plunge after that, it's pretty shocking to yeah, your system, yeah. but you quickly adapt or you quickly get out and get back in the hot tub. <laughs> yeah. But it causes your system a shock to do that. And these small intermittent shocks like that are very good for the mitochondria because it really kicks them into overdrive. And from an evolutionary standpoint, it may be... It may be working as simple as this. Okay, if you're a sailor, you know mm -hmm. we're talking about a couple hundred years back, and you're a sailor on a tall ship, you fall overboard into the the ocean, and it's really cold, and you know you, you get pulled back out. Your system's like, whoa, that might happen on a regular basis. So you know we have mm -hmm. to make more of you know more mitochondria to be able to keep the core temperature strong enough to be able wow. to survive something like that, and so that may be. May simply be an evolutionary strategy that we've developed over millennium years, just to, you know, to protect our, to keep our surviving. So, so real quick before we go on, I, I just want to back up for a quick second because for anybody who just clicks on this on this uh, podcast, they may be a little confused as to everything that we're talking about. But the mitochondria are the they're a, uh, an organelle of the of a cell, right? It's the powerhouse of right. the cell, right. and they produce something called ATP. If I'm not mistaken, which That's is what correct. powers uh, the cell, in, in, in essence. And so you're saying that certain parts of your body have more uh, mitochondria that require more energy, like your retina, and uh, what else did you say? The heart and the brain. The heart and the brain, which makes sense because that's yeah. you know we're requiring a lot of energy. And so you are somebody who studies this stuff and learns ways to hack, in a sense, like a bio. You're a biohacker, right? So you hack. Uh, hack is kind of a funny word, right? But it's you find out ways to, um, what would the word be, to make, to pull the full use of your biology. Yeah, so it's basically taking all the cutting edge um, understanding coming out of uh, what they call the life sciences, which okay. is, you know, biochemistry, biophysics, mm -hmm. immunology, you know, all the things that, the science of life, essentially. And so um, biohackers or bio-optimization um, this number of names um, being used uh, for this. It's basically using all this cutting-edge research and actually applying it to your health. And so it somewhat leapfrogs where we are with Western allopathic medicine, which is mm -hmm. largely based off of a pharmaceutical approach um, mm -hmm. for dealing with uh, many diseases, um, which was, was great at the turn of the century when most of our diseases were 
they call it acute inflammation like diphtheria, tuberculosis, um, pneumonia, mm-hmm. um, influenza. Um, and they did pretty good with that. But now most of our issues are what they call chronic inflammation or lifestyle okay. um, diseases. You know, ch- things that we chose to do, you know, the foods we've chose to eat, and the behavior we chose to pursue, as well as a number of things that, you know, we don't have as large a control over, you know, than what's in our water, what's in our air, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. what we're exposed to from non-native EMF fields, et cetera, et cetera. So we, well, there's a lot of, lot of stuff going on um, in the background to, to contribute to our chronic illnesses and our yeah. that, uh, disease that, state. That gentleman, Wim Hof, from Holland, mm-hmm. I don't know if you're familiar. Yeah. I know Oliver yeah. yeah, you're familiar yeah. with it. He, yeah. I feel like he has sort of brought the mitochondrial issue kind of to the public eye, and he's a mm-hmm. big proponent of the cold plunges, what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Uh, he calls it cold immersion therapy or something of the yeah. sort. Um, those, uh, the little, uh, what do you want to call them, the little interventions he holds mm-hmm. look really fun. I would love to do one. Yeah, and I know. And a bunch I, of people jumping yeah, I in. I saw a video of, of his stuff. But, yeah, Wim Hof is definitely, his mitochondria are definitely on fire. That guy <laughs> to do some of the feats he does, you know. In, Under in the ice, super cold water. Right. Well, he Nuts. hiked Mount Everest in nothing but shorts, which is incredible. Yeah. I mean, unheard of. And he says that he did it through his breathing technique. Yeah. Of, you know, it's in a sense like the fire breathing and um, yeah. Kundalini yoga. Yeah. But a lot of the many of the things he does has contributed to his mitochondria being very high amounts of mitochondria and mm-hmm. very efficient. Right. In function. So that's why you can do those kind of things. The, well, yeah, the, the cold ahead. showers in particular, I mean, I've, I've been doing them kind of on and off for, I would say, the last maybe year since I discovered Wim Hof, actually. Um, and it's tough. What I find <laughs> yeah, from them, tough. yeah, they're, especially you. in the morning, you roll you. out of bed, it's very difficult. Yeah. But what I found from them is almost an immediate energy rush. And I'm, mm-hmm. that's most definitely the mitochondria kind of at work. But that's the biggest thing that I've seen in, in, as far as short, uh, short-term short you know, gain from these uh, showers. Like as soon as I get out and I warm off with the towel a bit, I get this like surge, like no other energy, almost like I've had three cups of coffee yeah. and I'm ready to get after it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's interesting. Yeah. That, that's So that would be considered like a biohack, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's okay. a biohack. And then, you know, things like the sauna, which right. is the opposite end of uh, cold, instead of cold thermogenesis, it's heat thermogenesis. And you're again, um, shocking them by having a higher higher amount of heat mm-hmm. um, for a period of time and so so you know those, those are some of the some of the different hacks so one thing that strikes me as very interesting is that it seems like it's second nature that we should be looking into biohacks and trying to apply them to our lives our lives but in general most people don't pay attention to these things they're not interested in in them and as a result you know our society especially here in America is suffering because of you know certain things that that we have discussed and, and what we were talking about a little bit off uh, off mic with you know various farm fed fish or farm raised fish and different um, you know roundup in the soil and, and things of that nature would you be able to talk a little bit about that and, and kind of what we were talking about with the fish specifically and I don't know what, what your whole thought is on well, you know, we live in a country which is primarily driven by economics, and so we're always trying to find the most um, economical way to produce the most stuff for the cheapest amount um, to, to get the biggest profit share. Right. And the problem is that doesn't necessarily take into consideration, you know, what we know about health. And so a lot of these things, such as... Um, growing animals in high densities like you see in any kind of um, industrial farming, whether mm-hmm. it's for cattle or for fish, you know, you're, you're, to be able to have that many animals in a small area, you tend to you have to use a lot of antibiotics, mm-hmm. which, you know, we all know is not such a good idea in the long run um, for various reasons. But some people, they, they choose to not pay attention to that. And that's, I think, where I'm a little confused is when people know that there's antibiotics going into these things, and then they eat them anyway, and they act as if it's not a problem. Well, you know, sometimes if, you know, as, as the expression goes, ignorance is bliss, you know, there is, 
you know, like we were talking about off mic, it's, there's so many rabbit holes you can go down here and the devil's in the detail. Mm -hmm. It's like, it's easy to get very overwhelmed easily when you're trying to see at all the different, you know, things that are coming at us all the time, whether, you know, it's in the water, the air, the food, the non-native EMF from cellular cell phones, et cetera, mm -hmm. et cetera. It's right. like, you know, you either just, you know, go into the corner and rock yourself to sleep every night and then fear everything or you sort of put some things to the side mm -hmm. and I think a lot of people do that because you know it, it can quickly get overwhelming and complex um, but I think you know like anything um, people are waking up and in, even in the world of um, as they say in the world of science and medicine, progress really comes at you know one funeral at a time, mm -hmm. which means the old school, the old guard, um, the scientists that were at their heyday, you know, you know, you know, they're at the maybe at their peak of their careers on the way on the backside, looking towards retirement, and you're changing the whole paradigm of how things are seen and viewed, and yet their expertise is predicated on you know what they learned at the time that they went right. to school and mm -hmm. then the experience they had. And so they're experts on something, and you know, they, they, they have their pedigree, they, um, they're known for being an expert in that field, and they have, of course, their house payments and their car payments mm -hmm. and the college yeah. kids' payments and all that. And you're telling them the next day that what they're an expert is on is is really not <laughs> how how it really yeah. you know what the current thinking is anymore right. well that's not going to go over very yeah. well with them they're going to hold yeah. on to that and you know so it's the new up-and-coming scientists and mds that are now exposed to some of these ideas that are coming out of the research lab like wow that makes a lot of sense i would like to apply that to my group of patients mm -hmm. and those are the ones that are making but you know it's a generational thing it's almost a 20-year process for all the older school mm -hmm. to retire and the newer ones to come up with these new ideas it's sort of like with you know the whole idea with, with um, albert einstein one of his biggest contributions was the theory of general relativity, mm -hmm. but it wasn't accepted by his colleagues at the time. They all thought he had got it wrong. He's right. okay, this brilliant guy, genius, he's done some great work, but hey, we all make mistakes. Yeah. And none of his contemporaries ever accepted it. They eventually just died off, and the new physicists coming up were like, hmm, wow. let's think about that. And now it's like a cornerstone of, of physics, you know, so Newtonian and, and relativistic physics mm -hmm. now. And so... Wow. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's definitely interesting, and, and also another lingering issue, you know, kind of piggybacking off you, is is the idea of the practitioner. Um, you know, you have these people who are taught something. Let's let's say they go to college, like what you're saying, and they're a biologist. They're taught from the university, from their professor, that this is the way it is. You know, but then as things start to shift, what they were taught in university is kind of dated. So now you have the issue of these people um, being professionals and being the top-of-the-line scientists who were taught outdated science. Mm -hmm. um, and it's kind of an issue of don't blame that person, blame the, the educator. You know, you can't blame the practitioner. You have to kind of put fault on the person who's teaching the outdated methods. So, mm. Well, <laughs> I, I might look at that a little differently than, than you do on that. Um, what, what you hear quite often, um, that's said in the beginning of medical school or, or graduate school in the life sciences, quite often you'll get an instructor who'll get up and say, okay, so there's good news and bad news. Um, we don't, you know, 50% of what we're going to be teaching you is incorrect. <laughs> the problem is we don't know which 50% it is mm. yet. Wow. And this is true. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is true. I've seen yeah. this in my own career. Um, so much of what, what I learned in graduate school now, as you were saying, is outdated yeah. in the sense that the science has now uncovered that it's not quite the way it, we thought it was. Uh -huh. And, you know, and it, this gets back to a lot of this biohacking. It's yeah. like, okay, we thought this for the longest time we behaved this way, but now we're realizing it doesn't quite work that way. You know, for the longest time we saw the mitochondria, the powerhouses mm -hmm. of the cells, hey, that's what they do. Their job is to make power. And Okay. And then we forget about it after high school. You know, yeah. One of biology, one of the other powerhouse. Okay, but what we found out um, in about the 1990s is that this this concept of epigenetics, right. which is you know this sort of 
um, switching system that exists on our genes to turn them on and off. Mm -hmm. We learned about that. And, oh, wow, that's you know that's something new. How it works on humans, and then then about maybe a decade later, we largely found that the mitochondria was largely involved in regulating this epigenetics, and so it, so as if making all the energy to run the body isn't enough of a job. Now here they're tasked with actually sampling the environment and making changes on the fly to how our genes are turned on and off, and so it changed everything and how we how we see we work. Right. But as a result of that, that's caused a lot of changes needed for the paradigm that we exist in. So I've spent a lot of the last 10 years of my life sort of unlearning a lot of the things that I took as dogma and replacing mm -hmm. it with, you know, what I am seeing coming out of the labs now. Mm -hmm. and, and so you always have to be nimble. You know, you never get to the point where you're done being educated because it's a moving target. <laughs> yeah, very much. Yeah. And yeah. this concept of epigenetics is something we talked about in the in the last uh, podcast that we did in Joshua Tree, but it's it's pretty much the concept of like above genes, right? That's yeah. the the prefix is epi above genes, and it, and it's to say that you're not a victim of your genetic um, hand. Is that correct? So that if you have, for example, like you were saying before, uh, with Alzheimer's. If somebody is maybe potentially more susceptible or it's run in their family that they have Alzheimer's, uh, it's not to say that they are damned to that and that will be their faith, which is potentially what the previous school of thought, the more Newtonian uh, way of thinking was, was bringing forth. And, and this is kind of to say that maybe you're predisposed to a higher likelihood that you can develop that, but it is not to say that you are cursed and assigned to that. Is that correct? That's, uh, that's totally correct. Okay. Yeah, there's a number of genes that will uh, that would make you more susceptible to a particular thing, such as breast cancer mm -hmm. or, or Alzheimer's, or, or, you know, there's a number of genes there. But there's n no way suggesting that you will definitely get Alzheimer's. Mm -hmm. It's a large of the equation, a large part of the equation is the epigenetic influence mm -hmm. on those particular susceptibility genes. So if you do a lot of things which um, cause oxidative stress in your system, you're increasing the likelihood that that susceptibility gene will, will you know, it's, you know, you're just in a weaker state. And so two people could be doing the same right. bad behavior, but the person with that weakened susceptibility gene is going to likely be affected mm -hmm. by that bad behavior to a stronger extent than the other person. So, but that doesn't, but you know, if, if you're participating in really bad behavior all the way around as far as health is concerned, you may not have a susceptibility gene, but you still may get Alzheimer's or you still may get cancer. Mm -hmm. um, it's, you know, it's, you know, you do enough things wrong. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, do you feel that that, the whole concept of epigenetics is something that is in this 20-year uh, period of catching up right now where the current science is starting to catch up? You, do you know what, I'm, what I mean? Um, yeah, yeah, we are catching up in the sun. That's a, you know, really that's a whole where this whole world of biohack and bio-optimization has come from. It's because we mm -hmm. realize with epigenetics that, holy cow, we really have a huge amount of control over our lo a lot of health, our health, where for so long we're like, hey, I'm destined this because it's in my genes, you know, what, what can right. I do? I, I didn't pick my parents mm -hmm. and uh, they have this and da-da-da. But you're realizing, like, you know, that's just really actually a, a relatively small part of the picture, mm -hmm. that this epigenetic or this um, software that's actually running the actual genes themselves, turning them on and off, is largely what's responsible. And we're largely, it is largely influenced by the choices that we make. And the choices that we make, correct me if I'm wrong, because this is just simply what, what I know. My experience with understanding epigenetics comes from... Um, the biology of belief by Bruce Lipton, which, right. if I'm not mistaken, you you're friends with or you know. Yeah, we, we were we were friends. Uh, I haven't spoken with him in a number of years. Uh, I mean, he's a busy guy, and I am too. But uh, yes, you know. That's really cool. Yeah, he's a he he's very cool. I like his work a lot as well. But he was kind of the whole thing that I took from the book is that the the cell membrane is the the real the center of everything. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and is that, can you, is that comparable? Like, does it translate to, does it parallel what we do? Like, and that's 
how it relates to uh, biohacking in the sense that the cell membrane, it's hard, it's very difficult to explain, and perhaps you would be able to explain it better than me, but my understanding is that the cell membrane is responsible for, is it the health of the cell more so than the nucleus, or it's responsible for the, um, the like, the decisions, do you know what I mean? Well, if you, to give you an analogy, okay, so if you think of the whole body, we have our eyes that tell us what's going on around us in reference to light, right? Mm-hmm. And we have our ears that are telling us what's going on um, around us in reference to sound, and we act on that. Same with uh, you know, our skin, we can sense temperature, so you know we mm-hmm. react, we put on a coat, take off a coat. Um, so we have all these sensors on our body. And so what Bruce pointed out in, in his book of biology of belief, which is pretty amazing, is that the cell membrane on each one of our cells mm-hmm. has all these detection systems as well. And so they're constantly making choices based on the heat they're experiencing, the light they're experiencing, you know, the environment that they're in. And mm-hmm. so you've got these membranes that are working um, almost like um, a very simplified, you know, version of the whole. So they mm-hmm. have the ability to feel different um, energy, you know, either, you know, sunlight or, yeah. or warmth or cold um, or, you know, you know, volatile chemicals on our, on our skin. And so they can make choices as to, you know, how the cell is being regulated and what genes are turned on and what the... And, um, you know, whether they're going to allow passage of, the, of ions into the cell. And so each one of these cells are making all these decisions based on all these sensors that they have in the cell membrane. Just okay. like we have sensors all through our body, you know, mm-hmm. our eyes and our ears. And so it's, it's interesting that each one of these cells, in a sense, is making its own decisions on a number of parameters. And so when you look at it that way, you've got this whole body that's, that's you know, changing things on the fly constantly mm. and, you know and we're not fully aware of it because but it's that's how we work but it's happening yeah and then it, so yeah. in order to uh, so then tying that back to epigenetics it's kind of saying that we have the ability to sort of persuade and push these cells and all these little things that are going on into a larger picture that's going to be you know a better lifestyle more healthy you know better future whatever the case may be and you are mr biohacker you know himself <laughs> so I would love to get some more practical examples of some biohacks. Obviously, you know, some that come to mind are, you know, less technology before bedtime, which I know you're a big fan the of. Blue, uh, the blue light. The blue light, taking yeah. the blue light out. Uh, yeah, if you do have to use the technology, you know, add, take the blue light out. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're a proponent of not eating close to bedtime, I believe. Yeah. Um, some of those other ones, like the cold showers, another one. So what are some other ones that maybe you find yourself doing or some other ones that uh, people can take away? Yeah. Um, so, you know, they... I, I I put out on, on my website, I have like the uh, 10 biohacks um, that I put, uh, that I that I recommend to everyone, mainly because they are low-hanging fruit, you know, and these are things like, simple things like, okay, well, we know vitamin D is incredibly important in, in mm-hmm. so many different functions of our body, and yet, you know, we, even though we're considered an outdoor species... We live primarily indoors nowadays, and so you know most people are very deficient in vitamin D, mm. and because they're not getting outside enough to get, and, and plus we have, we even live in a society that fears the sun because oh, skin cancer, skin cancer, right. but you know you're actually doing yourself a disservice by not getting some sun. You know the rule is that you want to get about twenty minutes on about forty percent of your skin a day, and uh, to to really get your vitamin D levels up and. How many people really do that or have they, in their busy schedules have time? And then, of course, during the cooler months, you know, it's not so easy to yeah. do. So, you know, you, you have the choice of supplementing in those cases. But, you know, that's just, you know, that's like a really low-hanging fruit. Mm. It's something that's really important, and yet most people don't pick up on how important that is. And again, like you said, you know, you don't want to power up your mitochondria just before you go to sleep because mm-hmm. that's when a lot of the maintenance processes is going on and you don't need the same amount of energy that you do during the day. And the way the mitochondria works with its signaling and in the making of ATP and the energy is that it produces what they call a lot of reactive, uh, reactive oxygen species, which are essentially what people know as like free radicals. Mm-hmm. And so they're highly um, energetic and they can be highly damaging if they're not, you know, used 
right away in the signaling process of the making of ATP. And so you don't really want to ramp up the system just before you go to sleep yeah. because now you're making too much energy and you have all this, you know, essentially you have this buildup of reactive oxygen species which has the potential of damaging the mitochondria or the cell membrane that mm -hmm. they're in. And so you really want to, within three hours of sleep, you really want to like stop eating. So you so three hours prior to going to bed. Prior, yeah, three hours prior to going to bed. Mm -hmm. and so, Sometimes it's very difficult, yeah. you know, especially if you have a very long day and you get home and you haven't eaten and you have to go to sleep. Yeah. In the, you know, that's, it's something that I've experienced recently with uh, school starting and everything. You know, it's very, it's tough to, to maintain that, but it's important. It's so important to, to do. And I've very much, you know, tried to do it and I'm yeah. trying to stay on track, but you know, we're all human and it's. Well, yeah. Difficult. I mean, so many, I mean, if, 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 I mean, there's so many books on, on the subject of, of epigenetics and the ketogenic diet and mitochondria, there's, there's so much wealth of information that's available to us now that it can get very overwhelming. Right. And if you just try to jump in with both feet full on, you just drive yourself crazy. You're like, okay, I can't eat that here and I can't eat yeah. that and I have to fast for this and I have to do this. And you're like, at the end of the day, where's the quality of life or enjoyment? Yeah. And right. so it's more about understanding that there's a new way of looking at how we are and what keeps us healthy. And that's simply, you know, to keep yourself as close to being in balance. Right. You know, both, you know, mentally, physically, you know, the way you eat, the way you behave. But, you know, don't try to learn all this stuff, you know, tonight, mm -hmm. you know. But learn that, that, A, first, you have a lot more control over your health than we recognize and your longevity than we recognized before. Okay, that's good. That's mm -hmm. the first step. Then, then learn a lot. Okay, well, the next step is like, wow, you know, keeping my mitochondria healthy is important and the first thing it, you know you want to do is figure out what damages mitochondria and stop doing that because that's going to have even a bigger impact than doing things and like are there a few things you, you could maybe name just like quickly that are like things that damage the mitochondria that anybody listening or even us we can take from this yeah well i mean the one thing about you know closing down shop you know within three hours okay so that's bed, big that that's that's one um Exposing yourself to um, too high of uh, non-native um, EMF fields. And it's like cell phones up to your head. Cell phones, Wi-Fi. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like I always tell people, you know, when I have, you know, I'm not, I'm not about to give up my cell phone or my laptop because, you know, I use them very heavy. But I am mindful of how I use my cell phone and my laptop. So, right. you know, whenever I walk around um, with my cell phone on my pocket, which, you know, most guys do. I mean, I always have it. It's in airplane mode right now. I mean, I mm. always have it in airplane mode if it's on my body, because that's when it's putting out its most intense signal. Because it's trying to connect with the towers around to tell you know where you are and blah blah blah. And it's and it does it on a regular basis, but it's bursting you every time we, you do that. Right. Um, and so most guys put it in their pant pocket, and so we're seeing you know a huge increase in infertility in mm. yeah. young, young men. And Courses an increase in testicular cancer as well. Mm. Women that put it in their bras increase in breast cancer, and then wow. of course glioblastomas from using it up against your head all the time. So I I don't ever do those things. Those, those things are very damaging. And the laptop on the on the lap as well. I've heard. Lap, yeah, the same thing with laptop, yeah. especially if you hook to Wi-Fi. Again, it's trying to connect with the router that's putting out the Wi-Fi signal, or you know, and so. Those are the things that you always want to be aware of is that, you know, the device, you know, it's one thing picking up a signal coming at you. And so we're bathed in that. But the strength of the signal of your laptop or your cell phone trying to communicate back is where the big burst is that's right next to you. So never have a you know laptop on your lap. And it's as simple as just turning off the, you know, either the Wi-Fi or the, you know, turning on the airplane mode, like you're saying, so it's not connecting to these mainframe towers or any sort of cell. When, when it's not in use. I mean, you know, when I'm when I'm working at home on my desk, you know, and I'm expecting the phone call, yeah, my, my um, cell phone's going to be on, but I always keep it at least three feet from my body. And then I even go, I mean, I don't even use Bluetooth um, with mm. them, even though I, you know, I, I love not having wires. I right. don't <laughs> do Bluetooth anymore. 
and even my headset, it's, you know, I use those air tubes, so the, the speakers are actually down here, and the last little bit is just like a, a tube. Yeah. It's air. And it, it, Interesting. It works pretty well, wow. you hear, but it keeps even the electronics out of my ears and all that. You know, that may be going a little far, but, <laughs> you know, there's so many dings that in our society. It's like all you can do is try to let, you know, be, first be aware of them and then to lessen them as much as you can. And so that's just, you know, some of the many things. And, well, that's a great list. And, you know, one other thing that, that we haven't mentioned yet, but I know you're a big, uh, big in the uh, permaculture scene, mm-hmm. right? And so maybe I was hoping you can maybe just talk a little bit about why it's important for humans to be in nature. Okay. You know? Well, you know, if, if, you, understand, if you know anything about permaculture, it's about um, our interrelation and interaction with with the world that we we live in we like to think of ourselves as being you know highly civilized and separate from the wild and nature but that's not true and that causes a lot of the problems that we're, we're facing with uh faced with in health today because we don't see that we're that we're intricately connected and evolved to live in our natural surroundings and we've done all these things you know, as they say, our brain is moving so fast, but our body evolves relatively slowly. Yeah. You know, evolutionary, it's like 30,000, 40,000 year process, but now our brains can make light year-round, grow food, ship it year-round everywhere in the world. But these sort of, you know, go against how we're designed to eat and all that. And so, it, you know, they it sort of catches up to us. And when you say the way we're designed to eat, you're referring to like seasonal yeah, yeah. So, you know, um, if you think of when most uh, plants ripen up with fruit, it's during the summer, mm-hmm. summer months, um, and uh, when our days are longer. And so our bodies is sort of really designed to, you know, um, want carbohydrates at that time of year mm-hmm. and, and eat them. And we're actually, you know, it's telling us, okay, it's summer, you know, fatten up, get ready for the winter because, you know, food is not going to be as prevalent. Right. That's how we're designed. However, we live in a world today that, um, you know, we can stay up all night with light. Mm-hmm. You know, we have the blue light, of course, which is how we, you know, set our clock on all our genes from, you know. And so we have all this light at night so we can make 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 it daylight 24 hours a day uh, if we want. Mm-hmm. We have all the carbohydrates and fruit we want year-round, whether you live in Boston or you want a banana in the middle of winter, yeah, it's there at the store. But our bodies are still designed to follow this feast and famine because, mm-hmm. you know, that's how we were behaving 30, 40,000 years ago. That's right. how our bodies designed, and yet we've changed the reality we live in, but it doesn't mean it doesn't confuse our body. Yeah. And so... When you're living like that four seasons out of the year instead of one, you're putting a, a lot of undue stress on your system because it's, it's, you're living in, in feast mode all the time. The days are long. There's plenty mm-hmm. of food. Eat up and get ready for the winter. Mm-hmm. And you're doing this four seasons a year. Well, you know, that's where you start seeing a lot of breakdown in health and obesity and all that because we're always in the mode of putting on fat for storage to get through mm-hmm. the winter. And the winter in our in our body never comes because it's always the long days and yeah. plenty of carbohydrates. And so, you know, we're aging ourselves a lot faster because we're only supposed to live in that kind of mode like one season and then go to the other three seasons and then the summer again. And so now we're just accelerating the whole process by not recognizing that, you know, we should be following a certain pattern of you know, right. how we eat and how we behave relative to the length of the day. Yeah. Everything you're saying, you know, from what I'm getting, has like this common theme of primal living, essentially. You know, and obviously we're not living 40,000 years ago. We're living in right. the present. With all this technology and everything we have, it's more about adapting a well-balanced lifestyle with that primal living kind of in, in mind yeah. and doing what you can, but still living a good quality of life is what you're saying. Not being over, um, you know, over hyper, uh, hyper on the biohacks and all these certain things, but just finding this kind of balance that's helping you in 
with that primal in mind. Yeah, you can drive yourself crazy if you're trying to add, you know, add everything into your life to do it exactly right. Yeah. I mean, that, that's, it's crazy. But, you know, in the world of permaculture, you're, you're trying to understand the natural patterns and trying to live a little more in sync with that. You know, but permaculture has really taken off because of technology in the sense, because now I can know what they're doing over in Australia. If someone's working on some kind of tweak on some aspect of permaculture and they found it really works, I can learn the, the next day about it living here in America and I can apply it to what I'm doing. So there's all these benefits to technology, um, but there's also the downside yeah. of technology and it's just so much of permaculture, so much of perma, uh, biohacking um, is just really understanding how it's how we fit into the whole picture and just being aware of what hurts us and what helps us. And so I say biohacking is just a continuation of the permaculture because it's all about the systems and how they interact. And you know, in the world of permaculture, they talk about the zones, right? The zone around your house is zone one. You spend the most time, and it goes all the way up to zone five. And that's like, you know, the if you live in an area where there's, you have a lot of land around you, that's the wild. You don't really do anything. You just let it be wild. But, you know, now they're talking about zone zero, which is actually the environment within your house, the structure. And so when I talk about you know, biohacking, I'm, I, I refer to it as almost like zone sub-zero. So it's sort mm. of like really how the whole system works internally. Right. But that's highly dependent on the environment, mm -hmm. zone zero, you know, the light you have, you know, zone one, the food you're growing or the, the food you're bringing in from the grocery store and what you're eating. Mm -hmm. And even the microbiome in your gut has a lot to do with the, the soil, you know, microbiome that's going on around you, around where you live. You know, we take on microbes from, you know, everything we do, yeah. the people we interact with, the, the spaces we live in, the, the soil that we're around, mm -hmm. um, whether we get our hands in the soil or, or, you know, or have a relationship with it, you know, that affects our, you know, our microbiome, which is super important how we work as well. You know, they have a whole communication system between your gut and your brain going on, you know, behind the scenes all the time and they're communicating. And it's just, you know, it's all very complex, but it's all very fascinating in how elegantly it's, how elegantly we're designed. And I'm just trying to help people recognize that elegance and get, you know, and realize that everything you do and say and eat and behave influences this. And so just be mindful of it. Don't drive yourself crazy over trying to learn everything. Oh, I can't go outside because... Uh. <laughs> You, know, you can't do that. You just your life would be miserable. <laughs> but being aware of what really is bad for you and what really is good for you is a good start. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, that's that's huge. You know, and the thing that I would be interested to ask you, which is something that um, one of our previous guests, Jonathan Velasquez, is a herbalist. Yes, he I suggested uh, for me to do, and I tried it, and I, I I would be curious if this is a biohack, but pretty much to go outside. Uh, specifically during the time that it's transitioning from daytime to nighttime and to walk around barefoot mm -hmm. and this is what he said to do and so I went and I did it and I felt so good and it's like you feel the grass that we have a park right across the way here and um, when you walk on the grass you feel the on barefoot it's just so weird because I never oftentimes go out walking around barefoot and you feel it and you feel so grounded and I, I was be curious what you think about that yeah, well, that, that's called um, grounding, or, or some people refer to it as earthing, um, and uh, some people roll their eyes at that. However, there has been a number of studies that do indicate that, yes, there's a charge that you can pick up from walking barefoot on the ground. It's a sort of a negative charge, and if you understand how our, our cells work, they all work as little batteries, and they're able to hold, you know, so... Electrons are sort of the currency of, of how we work. You know, that's the energy currency. So we talk about mitochondria that make um, ATP, but it's mm -hmm. all all done as a result of movement of electrons, the whole electron uh, chain transport system. It's about moving electrons down to allow the energetics of the ATP molecule, which is stored energy, to be able to be made so that we can be shipped throughout the body or shipped throughout the cell and used to get the electrons back out of it. 
And so grounding is a way to do that. Now, there's a lot of things you've got to take into consideration in grounding. Um, for instance, you know, I live out a Joshua tree, and mm -hmm. so grounding out there is not as effective because the soil is very dry and it's very alkali, two things that don't favor movement of electrons. So mm. walking around barefoot out there, even though it feels nice, it probably doesn't achieve the same as walking around a place where it's more moist and, and not as alkaline. That's really interesting. In fact, they say the best place to actually ground is right at that interface to the ocean. And, mm -hmm. and at the beach, I was going to say, yeah. The sand is really you know wet and tight mm -hmm. there mm -hmm. because you have a very moist environment and you have um, a lot of ions, the salt in the water, that which really increases the conductivity um, of electrons. And so walking barefoot along the beach, you know, it's largely... It, Probably part of why it's so, you know, um, settling and calming. Mm -hmm. Of course, right. being out, walking on the beach, just being out there is, you know, there's a lot of psychology, but they believe that, you know, that that may be, you know, part of the whole f feeling of wellness is because you're doing that. And so, like I said, the science, you know, there has been a number of uh, studies shown that there is science behind that. It's, you know, um, so it's not as far-fetched as, you know, you would think. So I, I kind of pushed you in our previous podcast um, on you writing a book, and I'm going to push you again because <laughs> I really feel you would write such an amazing book. That would be such a, you know, such a privilege to uh, society as a whole. But you know, if, if that's still not in the works uh, or isn't, you don't think it's going to happen, are there any good books you've read recently that you um, recommend? Yeah. I mean, in this space, there are so many good books coming out. Um, the, uh, I just wrote, read one um, that I thought was pretty good. It's actually a little older. I think it came out in 2005. It's called Lights Out. And Lights I think out. it was T.S. Wiley that wrote that. I thought was, you know, it was, it was, he, he was, a, he's an investigative journalist and he did it with a PhD uh, biologist. And so mm. he had a good way of turning words or using words. So it was, it was interesting to read and yet it was really packed full of some, you know, good observations. Um, from the scientific standpoint, so that was really good. Um, and of course, um, Travis, I think it's Christofferson, um, Tripping Over the Truth, which is really a lot about um, Thomas Seafried's work on um, cancer and uh, using a lot of these biohacking techniques. Um, mm. It's a whole protocol he's developed. Wow. But, um, so. Uh, Travis's book, he's, a, I believe, an investigative journalist as well, um, took that tome that Thomas Seafree wrote, which was, um, you know, Cancer as a Metabolic Disease. It's a pretty fat textbook and it's pretty dense, but he took that and put it in, in terms that most people can read, you know, most yeah. lay, lay, you know, Sports. educated people could read. Yeah. And so that's a really good book. You know, if you really want to understand where cancer comes from and what causes it and why so much of where we look at cancer from in, in standard practice and care of oncology in this country is is really a little dated and why, you know, by knowing the difference and what, what's what our understanding really is at the, you know, cutting edge of science, you realize like, wow, yeah, cancer is largely a metabolic disorder. And mm. if you treat it that way, the outcome is likely, you know, and it's proving to be the case. That's what a lot of the science that was being presented at this conference was about, just really showing like, wow, you know, if you do treat it that way, you're, you're being able to handle it and control it and reverse it and prevent it becomes very different than the way we're going about it now, thinking it as it is a purely genetic uh, disease, which doesn't seem to be supported to the same extent as it you know, wasn't thought of at one time. That's another one of the things that, you know, science for the longest time saw cancer that way. But now it's changing, and now it's looking like it's not so much that way. Yeah, this is 5 10% maybe purely genetic in nature, but the rest of it is, you know, epigenetics mm -hmm. interplaying with susceptibility genes. Mm -hmm. So it's a lot more dynamic than we originally thought. Yeah, well, you know, if we don't have the book from you, I know you do the biohacking seminars, yeah. which Oliver and myself would love to come to one day, mm -hmm. and we mm -hmm. definitely are planning on it. Um, and you have one coming up, actually, next week. Yeah, I have one um, coming up in the Joshua Tree uh, on the 16th. It's just a, a half-day workshop. Of what, you know, what I've 
what I'm doing it with a, another researcher, uh, Dr. Natasha Shelby, who's a biologist and um, an ecologist, and so we're um, we're doing one um, each season, half day, uh, mainly because you know a lot of this material can easily become overwhelming if you mm -hmm. just dump it all out at once, and so. Um, I did a full day workshop and, and people loved it, but they just thought it was way too much information um, in one day. And so we're trying to do it, um, model it to the season because you know the way you sh you know way is good the way to best behave during the winter and what you should eat and blah blah blah. Um, it's different during the winter than it is in the summer and spring right. and fall. And so, so basically, we're doing these half day. Uh, um, workshops and basically talking about the season that we're in so this one will be about winter and about you know how you should you know how it's best from a scientific standpoint to deal with carbohydrates um your behavioral patterns how you deal with light in your in your world um you know a lot of things that you know most people just are not aware of you know so it's a lot of tips and tools and just helping people start their own journey on this whole idea of optimizing their health based on you know cutting-edge science totally and I know you do some uh, some seminars and some workshops as well a little more local to you know the Woodland Hills area which is where we are now and we do have a you know quite a bit of people who listen who are a bit more local than mm -hmm. Joshua Tree and it, you have a website that they could kind of maybe go on and find out a little bit more about you and find those schedule yeah. for your workshops um, yeah I, I don't have any scheduled um, for LA um, on the books just yet it doesn't mean I can if there's enough interest, I'll come here. Um, so, um, uh, like I said, I have these four going on in Joshua Tree, and then um, I do some. I probably be down in Costa Rica working on a, a week-long workshop with some other people here. Um, the date hasn't been set on that one yet. Um, that's still in the, the making. Um, and then you know I do one-on-one -on -one consults, but then there's my website, which is. Um, Eden, like in the Garden of Eden, Eden RD, which stands for regenerative design. So it's Eden RD dot uh, coach, the word coach, the number two, um, and the word edify, E D I F Y dot org. And that's my website. And I have uh, the 10 top biohacks on that that you can download. Also have um, my workshops listed on there. And, and my lectures if I have any lectures coming up I have them listed and then there's just I'm adding more material to that um, I'll be putting in a number of additional biohacks that are a little more um, I'm, I'm trying to put in you know for the you know for the for the layman um, put it in language that people can understand some of these things then then have it for someone that's you know maybe a little more wants to go a little deeper and then I'll like to have a section um, that's for people that really want to geek out mm. that you know have have the have the thirst for knowing it on a deeper level and it maybe you know and have done um, some work in understanding the actual complexity of some of these things to have you know something there for them as well um, you know, I, I like geeking out on this with other uh, scientists, but, you know, not everyone finds this <laughs> as fascinating as I yeah, do. Yeah, of course. So. <laughs> uh, well, I think it goes without saying that the work that you're doing is extremely important, and we're so grateful to, to have yeah. you here now and to be able to have you on the podcast and hopefully have you on, in the future as well. Well, I love what you guys are doing and, and the type of uh, interviews and the type of people you're attracting and getting into the hands of as many people as you can. I mean, that's just... You know, it's just all about, you know, sharing of knowledge. And, and now we're living in a world, you know, you're doing this with technology. And that's right. That's yeah. great. You know, technology used correctly is, is a great thing. It's mm -hmm. just, we, we've got to realize that, you know, we, how we use technology, that, you know, there's a downside. And so you just want to mitigate as much as you can the negative effects so you can continue on mm -hmm. taking advantages yeah. of, of all the great things that technology can do without, you know, killing yourself in the deal I'm, you know unbeknownst to yourself quite often <laughs> right yeah it's a balancing act but yeah. you know the, the the benefits are very immense and we're very grateful to be in this world of technology where we yeah. can get our voice out to people and get your voice out to people as well so with that dr tim uh thank you for everything i think this was an awesome episode well thank Absolute you guys pleasure. i thank always you. appreciate uh having a conversation with you too so 